Even before 9-11, Osama bin Laden was a hard man to reach. March of 1997, after waiting for several days in Jalalabad, Afghanistan, three CNN journalists were riding in an Al-Qaeda van wearing sunglasses with bits of cardboard cut out acting as makeshift blindfolds. It was already evening and getting darker outside as the van headed to the Tora Bora Mountains outside of the city. Peter Arnett was a veteran journalist who had won a Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of the Vietnam War. More recently, he had earned fame and acclaim as one of CNN's Boys of Baghdad for his live reporting during Operation Desert Storm. In doing so, he had become part of a journalistic milestone, the first live, real-time coverage of a war from behind enemy lines. Peter Juvenal was an experienced war photographer and cameraman. Between 1979 and 1989, he made 72 trips across the border into Afghanistan with the Mujahideen. Peter Bergen was the producer who had arranged the interview and the future Osama bin Laden biographer. After several weeks of negotiations through intermediaries, they were on their way to meet face-to-face with the Al-Qaeda leader. When bin Laden eventually arrived, Bergen described them as, quote, very tall, rail-thin, soft-spoken, and comported himself like a cleric. He had a feline presence, which was quite different from the angry, table-thumping revolutionary we expected. Bin Laden shook hands with Juvenile, who described it as, quote, like sort of shaking hands with a fish. The interview lasted about an hour. Bin Laden recited a laundry list of grievances against American foreign policy. The continuing presence of American troops in Saudi Arabia six years after the end of Operation Desert Storm, U.S. sanctions against Iraq, U.S. support for Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, and his perceived humiliation of Muslims in Iraq, Kashmir, and Palestine. Bergen wrote years later, quote, Bin Laden's CNN interview was the first time that he told Western reporters he was declaring war on the United States. Here's one quote from the Bin Laden interview. We declared jihad against the U.S. government because the U.S. government is unjust, criminal, and tyrannical. It has committed acts that are extremely unjust, hideous, and criminal, whether directly or through its support of the Israeli occupation of the Prophet's night travel land, referring to Palestine. And we believe the U.S. is directly responsible for those who were killed in Palestine, Lebanon, and Iraq. Due to its subordination to the Jews, the arrogance and haughtiness of the U.S. regime has reached to the extent that they occupied the Qibla of the Muslims, referring to Saudi Arabia, who are more than a billion in the world today. Later on, he says, quote, We have focused our declaration on striking at the soldiers in the country of the two holy places, referring to Saudi Arabia. CNN's story and interview with bin Laden would air on May 10, 1997. Considering its significance in light of future events, it got very little attention at the time. In the most memorable and chilling exchange from the interview, Peter Arnett asked, quote, What are your future plans? Osama bin Laden allows himself a slight grin as the question is translated for him. He responds, quote, You'll see and hear about them in the media, God willing. He was correct. I'm David DeSola. This is the fourth episode of Zero Hour, A History of 9-11. Almost a year earlier, Osama bin Laden had fled Sudan, along with what remained of his family and his organization, and not much else. His friend from the Afghan war, Mullah Nurallah, gave him a tract of land in Jalalabad to build himself a private compound, and a mountain in Tora Bora. After spending a month in the city, he relocated to the mountain. Getting there wasn't easy. The roads, if you use the word generously, were often unpaved and made for several hours worth of difficult and dangerous driving. There were a few huts and structures up near the top. According to Omar bin Laden, they were, quote, fit for nothing more than sheltering livestock. 
His father's plan at the time was to wait out the ongoing Afghan civil war from the comfort and security of this mountain. He made arrangements for his wives and other children who had stayed behind in Sudan to come to Afghanistan, where they would all live on the mountain, which had no running water or electricity. Bin Laden had always wanted to emulate the Prophet's frugal lifestyle with minimal amenities. On this mountain, he finally got his wish. One of Osama Bin Laden's pastimes during this period was taking long hikes, some as long as 14 hours. He would sometimes cross over the unmarked border into neighboring Pakistan. He once told his son Omar, quote, We never know when war will strike. We must know our way out of these mountains. We must memorize every rock. Nothing is more important than knowing secret escape routes. His knowledge of this terrain may well have made all the difference when he was evading American forces in December of 2001. At some point in 1997, he told his family and the Al-Qaeda leadership that were living on the mountain that it was time to leave. They drove to Jalalabad, where Bin Laden and his lieutenants would take time to regroup and plan their next moves. Sometime after arriving in Jalalabad, Osama's first wife Najwa gave birth to their 10th child in a hospital, a daughter named Rukaya. Meanwhile, Bin Laden was driving around the country surveilling military bases left behind by the Russians, many of them built near major Afghan cities. Mullah Omar had told Bin Laden that he could use any of those that weren't already occupied by the Taliban. Bin Laden wanted to set up training camps and get them up and running as soon as possible. Secrecy was paramount during Al-Qaeda's early years. Eventually, Osama Bin Laden decided it was time to put his name and face front and center. He already knew firsthand the power of media coverage, going back to his days in the Soviet-Afghan war when the Arab press turned him into a war hero. Bin Laden's first interview with the Western media outlet was with British foreign correspondent Robert Fisk, while he was still living in Khartoum. It ran in the December 3, 1993 edition of The Independent. Bin Laden admitted to bringing an undefined number of Mujahideen from Afghanistan to Sudan, where some of them were helping him build a new 800-kilometer-long highway connecting Khartoum to Port Sudan. He also noted that a small number of them had gone on to fight in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Bin Laden denied rumors in the media and the local embassy circuit in Khartoum that some of his Mujahideen were busy preparing to fight future jihads in Algeria, Tunisia, and Egypt. Quote, I am a construction engineer and an agriculturalist. If I had training camps here in Sudan, I couldn't possibly do this job. This was a blatant lie. Evidence from numerous sources shows Al-Qaeda did have training camps in Sudan, and that some of the jihadists in those camps were preparing for future battles in their home countries. Bin Laden also received a brief mention in Time magazine in a 1993 article as part of a list of figures, quote, related to the history of fighting in Afghanistan. Three years later, correspondent Scott McCloud traveled to Khartoum for an interview with Bin Laden, which ran in the May 6, 1996 edition of the magazine. McCloud noted that even then, the State Department described him as, quote, one of the most significant financial sponsors of Islamic extremist activities in the world today. The interview was published six months after the bombing of a military building in Riyadh and about seven weeks before the Kobar Towers bombing, both in Saudi Arabia. An anonymous U.S. official described bin Laden as, quote, high on our suspect list. McLeod noted bin Laden's pedigree and wealth, estimating that at 38, his age at the time, he controlled a personal fortune worth an estimated $300 million. Bin Laden declined to comment on his ties to the Iranian and Sudanese governments, as well as to the blind sheikh who was already in prison at this point. 
Although Bin Laden had raised the ire of several governments by this point, McLeod notes in the story that he had not been charged with any crimes. The story also includes two quotes from Bin Laden himself that handed what was to come. The first, Muslims burn with anger at America. For its own good, America should leave Saudi Arabia. The second, people are supposed to be innocent until proved guilty. While not the Afghan fighters, they are the terrorists of the world. But pushing them against the wall will do nothing except increase the terrorism. June 25th, 1996. An explosion has occurred at a U.S. Air Force facility in Dharan, Saudi Arabia. This occurring just a short time ago. There are reportedly a number of casualties. The Associated Press says right now they know of at least 60 casualties. It is unclear whether this is a terrorist attack or if it is simply an accident. However, due to the sensitive area and certainly the target, it would seem to be suspicious. A truck bomb detonates inside the Kobar Towers residential complex in Dharan, Saudi Arabia. It was home to U.S. Air Force personnel supporting Operation Southern Watch, a no-fly zone operation in southern Iraq. 19 airmen were killed, and more than 400 U.S. and international military and civilian personnel were injured by the explosion. According to the 9-11 Commission report, quote, the operation was carried out principally, perhaps exclusively, by Saudi Hezbollah, an organization that has received support from the government of Iran. While the evidence of Iranian involvement is strong, there are also signs that al-Qaeda played some role as yet unknown. Here is former National Security Council official Stephen Simon. There's two attacks in Saudi Arabia, um, a building in Riyadh and then Kobar Towers. It was two separate attacks about a month apart. Uh, do you remember this? Uh, yeah, the the sources of the attack, I believe, were different. The, 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 the first attack, I think the attacks were actually a year apart. They... Uh, the first attack was uh, against the office of the program manager of the Saudi Arabian National Guard. The program manager was a U.S. contractor, uh, and 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 that was a deadly attack, uh, and it was waged by uh, Sunni jihadists, as I recall, of an Al Qaeda ilk. Uh, the the attack against uh, Kobar Towers. Uh, in in Saudi Arabia, the subsequent attack was uh, carried out by uh, uh, by Saudi Hezbollah uh, at the instigation of Iran and appeared to have been uh, planned uh, and and organized uh, by the uh, uh, Iranian Revolutionary the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Um, uh, a contingent in the Iranian embassy in Damascus. So there, there were two attacks, um, one against a United States military facility, one against a, a, a U.S. contracting facility. And the temptation is to see them as stemming from the same source. But in fact, uh, the, the two attacks originated um, uh, in in different ways and and uh, and among different adversaries. Right. Um, there is some dispute about whether I've I've talked to several people as to whether Al Qaeda had sub role in this or not. Um, I mean, I, everything I've I've read is is points to Saudi Hezbollah, but I mean, you tell me. Well, I've never seen um, you, you know any persuasive evidence that counters. Uh, the view, the intelligence and law enforcement view at the time, which was that uh, it was an Iranian instigated 
uh, attack um, that was staged out of uh, uh, out of Damascus. You know, that's that's the latest and greatest news I've got on this. And I'm, yeah, uh, there, there are contesting views. There always are, but. Anyway, I think the, the original version is probably the most convincing. Once settled in Afghanistan, over the next two years, Osama bin Laden does a series of interviews with Arab and Western news organizations. July 1996, Osama bin Laden invites Robert Fisk for another interview, this time in Afghanistan. He warns the British and French governments to withdraw their troops from Saudi Arabia, citing the Kobar Towers attacks just two weeks earlier as evidence of the hatred for Americans in the kingdom. When Fisk asks bin Laden if he was declaring war on the West, he responds, quote, It is not a declaration of war. It's a real description of the situation. This doesn't mean declaring war against the West and Western people, but against the American regime, which is against every Muslim. He also states, probably correctly, quote, the safest place in the world for me is Afghanistan. August 23, 1996, Bin Laden releases a 20-page manifesto signed in his own name titled, quote, Declaration of Jihad Against the Americans Occupying the Land of the Two Holiest Sites. It is a reading of grievances against the United States, the United Nations, Israel, and Saudi Arabia. Bin Laden took an explicit shot at then-U.S. Secretary of Defense William Perry, who referred to the people responsible for the Kobar Towers attack as cowardly terrorists. Bin Laden says, quote, The youths you called cowards are competing amongst themselves for fighting and killing you. They love death as much as you like life. He went on to defend the earlier Riyadh attack by saying, quote, The most honorable death is to die for the sake of God like those four heroes who set off the explosives that killed the Americans in Riyadh. He also wrote, quote, After belief, there is no more important duty than pushing the American enemy out of the Holy Land. If it is not possible to push back the enemy except by collective movement of the Muslim people, then there is a duty of the Muslims to ignore the minor differences among themselves. Ultimately, this would be bin Laden's biggest contribution to jihadist terrorism. Before bin Laden, Islamic terrorism could be characterized as a series of local insurgencies or organizations which were mainly focused on local grievances against their national governments, dubbed the near enemy. Bin Laden called on them to see the bigger picture and shift their focus to attacking the far enemy, the United States. The logic behind bin Laden's argument was that if the United States withdrew from the Middle East, the mostly secular governments that it supported that jihadists despised Israel, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Algeria, and Jordan, just to name a few, would fall and be replaced by Islamist governments to their liking. According to a 2005 study by the University of Pittsburgh, quote, by establishing a broad ideological base centered on Islam, bin Laden created the first multi-ethnic pan-Islamic organization. Media coverage in the West of bin Laden's declaration of jihad was minimal, if any. To the extent that anyone was focused on terrorism at that point, they were probably paying attention to the bombing of the Olympic Games in Atlanta a month earlier. He also read the declaration out loud for an audio tape recording with the intent of distributing it around the world. Eventually, through the Advice and Reform Committee in London, bin Laden representatives took media queries and eventually invited a select group of journalists from Arab and Western media to meet with bin Laden himself. Among the Western journalists chosen to sit down for interviews with bin Laden were Abdul Bari Atwan, the editor-in-chief of the London-based Arab newspaper Al-Quds Al-Arabi, the CNN team mentioned at the beginning of the episode, an ABC News team led by then-correspondent John Miller, Robert Fisk of the British newspaper The Independent, 
and a team from British Channel 4. Atwan met and interviewed Bin Laden in Tora Bora in November of 1996. He described him as, quote, tall and slender and without any apparent physical weakness. He also wrote, quote, Bin Laden's manner is one of extreme humility, and I discovered in the two days I spent in his company that he can be very pleasant to be with. His voice is soft but clear. He is constantly smiling in a reassuring manner that shortens the distance between him and his guest, especially one meeting him for the first time. He spent the night in the same cave as Bin Laden and slept on a mattress on top of a box of grenades. Atwan's interview with Bin Laden was published on November 27, 1996. Bin Laden defended the terror attacks in Saudi Arabia. Quote, What happened in the Riyadh and Al-Khobar blast was praiseworthy terrorism because it was against thieves, not individuals, but major states, which went there to plunder the riches of this nation and to encroach on its greatest holy site. It is a great honor for every Muslim to defend his Qibla and liberate it from these aggressors who are plundering its riches. February 20th, 1997. In the United Kingdom, Channel 4 runs correspondent Gwyn Roberts' interview with Osama bin Laden. During the interview, bin Laden claims credit on behalf of his followers for forcing the Americans to withdraw from Somalia in 1993. He also frames his conflict as, quote, a new crusade led by America against Islamic nations. March 22, 1997. Robert Fisk travels to Afghanistan to interview Osama bin Laden for a third and final time. Bin Laden calls the Riyadh and Kobar Towers bombings, quote, a great act in which I missed the honor of participating. This will become a recurring pattern in his public comments. Praise for terror attacks or the individuals who carried them out, but would never claim credit nor involvement in the deed for himself, though it's worth comparing this with his comments about Somalia. He hinted at Al-Qaeda involvement in Black Hawk Down four years earlier. Quote, We also believe that our battle against America is much simpler than the war against the Soviet Union because some of our Mujahideen who fought here in Afghanistan also participated in operations against the Americans in Somalia, and they were surprised at the collapse of American morale. This convinced us that the Americans are a paper tiger. Bin Laden shows his misunderstanding of American history and government during this interview. He suggests that individual U.S. states might secede from the Union because of Washington's support for Israel. Bin Laden also told Fisk that he had turned down an offer from an emissary representing the Saudi royal family. Give up his jihad, and he and his family would have their Saudi citizenships and passports restored to them. On top of that, his family would receive 2 billion Saudi rials, roughly the equivalent of 533 million US dollars. He rejected the offer. Most chillingly, he also said, quote, we believe that God used our holy war in Afghanistan to destroy the Russian army and the Soviet Union. We did this from the top of this very mountain upon which you are sitting, and now we ask God to use us one more time to do the same to America to make it a shadow of itself. Robert Fisk died on October 30th, 2020. He was 74 years old. February 23rd, 1998. Al-Quds al-Arabi publishes the complete text of a two-page fatwa titled, quote, Declaration of the World Islamic Front for Jihad Against the Jews and the Crusaders. It is signed by Osama bin Laden. Among other things, the fatwa states, quote, The ruling to kill the Americans and their allies, civilians and military, is an individual duty for every Muslim who can do it in any country in which it is possible to do it. It also says, quote, We, with Allah's help, call on every Muslim who believes in Allah and wishes to be rewarded to comply with Allah's order to kill the Americans and plunder their money wherever and whenever they find it. 
The statement was co-signed by leaders of Egyptian Islamic Jihad and Egyptian Islamic Group, in addition to representatives of jihadist organizations in Pakistan and Bangladesh. A CIA memo dated that same day notes, quote, These fatwas are the first from these groups that explicitly justify attacks on American civilians anywhere in the world. Both groups have hinted in the past that civilians are legitimate targets, but this is the first religious ruling sanctifying such tactics. May 26, 1998. Osama bin Laden calls a press conference, where he is flanked by Ayman al-Zawahiri and Mohammed Atef. A small select group of mostly Pakistani journalists is invited to cover the event. The press conference was filmed by an Al-Qaeda cameraman. The video was one of 64 later obtained by CNN. They were found inside an Afghan home where Osama bin Laden had stayed. Also among those present at the press conference were two sons of imprisoned Egyptian cleric Omar Abdel Rahman. They distributed what Peter Bergen described as small cards which were copies of their father's will and testament. Bergen obtained a copy and published the translated text in his book, The Osama Bin Laden I Know. Upon his death in American custody, which the blind sheikh knew would happen since he'd received a life sentence, he urged his followers, quote, Do not let my blood be shed in vain. Rather, extract the most violent revenge and remember your brother who spoke the truth and died for the will of God. To all Muslims everywhere, destroy their countries, tear them to pieces, destroy their economies, burn their corporations, destroy their businesses, sink their ships, and bring down their airplanes. Kill them in the sea, on land, and in the air. It is signed, quote, Your brother, Omar Abdel Rahman, from inside American prisons. According to Peter Bergen, the significance of the fatwa is that it was, quote, the first time that anyone associated with Al-Qaeda had given religious sanction to attacks on American aviation, shipping, and economic targets. The fatwa, with its exhortations to bring down their airplanes, burn their corporations, and sink their ships, would turn out to be a slowly ticking time bomb that would explode first on October 12, 2000 when a suicide attack blew a hole the size of a small house in the USS Cole in Yemen, and then again with even greater ferocity on 9-11. This document would later be circulated within Al-Qaeda. May 28, 1998. ABC News correspondent John Miller interviews Osama bin Laden in the middle of the night at an Al-Qaeda camp on an undisclosed mountaintop somewhere in Afghanistan. The interview lasts one hour. Bin Laden only answers the pre-submitted questions. Because Miller didn't speak Arabic and there was no interpreter provided, he was unable to ask follow-up questions. Bin Laden makes these chilling comments, quote, We do not differentiate between those dressed in military uniforms and civilians. They are all targets of this fatwa. Quote, I predict a black day for the United States after which the United States will never be the same. Keep in mind that when Bin Laden says this, he knows that the Africa embassy bombing plots are already underway. The attacks would take place 72 days later. Bin Laden justified his use of terrorism during this interview by citing the U.S. bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki during World War II. The interview would air in the United States on June 10th. At the time, Diana Balsinger was an analyst in the CIA's counterterrorist center. So, are you watching these interviews at the time, and, and what are your what are your thoughts in that? What are what's the thinking in house about what he's saying? We took them seriously. I will say that there were those outside of CTC, in the IC, and the larger foreign policy establishment, who at that time considered bin Laden to be a blowhard, not genuinely a threat. 
the people who worked the accounts, whether we're talking uh, the analysts on the countries or whether we're talking inside CTC, took those interviews very seriously. The initial public reaction to the bin Laden interviews was indifference. It was similar even within some parts of the government. What did you think about the general lack of interest or lack of a response at the time in terms of public opinion? Hindsight, again, obviously 2020, but what do you think about the lack of any sort of even, not just public interest, but even journalistic and within the institutions that that hired these interviews? I would say from 1993 to 2001 was a terribly frustrating time to be working counterterrorism. We were told many times that we basically, with our warnings, et cetera, were building bin Laden and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the other terrorists we were warning about greater than uh, they meant, than they deserved. Uh, we were blowing it up into something it wasn't. And that was frustrating. The lack of attention and interest carried over into some of the news organizations that had correspondents assigned to the terrorism and national security beat. According to journalists Terry McDermott and Peter Baker, during the years leading up to 9-11, the subject of terrorism was not typically a priority at news organizations. The lack of seriousness with which we addressed the problem prior to 9-11 is frightening. But then I I would have been the same. I mean, uh, Josh Meyer, who's the co-author on the hunt for KSM, was covering terrorism at the LA Times before 9-11. And he couldn't get his stories in the paper. You know, and we would just kind of laugh at him. Josh, why don't you change your beat, man? You're never going to, nobody cares about this stuff. You know, Josh was right. You know, we should have cared. Is what was media coverage like um, of the terrorism beat at the time before before Africa the Africa embassy bombings? Well, it was very hard for, for for those reporters at that time, no question about it. I mean, um, you know, again, it, it, my life at that moment was was consumed by the Kenneth Starr investigation and what Congress might do with it. I remember vividly that when Bill Clinton was up at Martha's Vineyard, and we got word that he was going to suddenly make an appearance at the school where the press was housed and everybody thought he was coming to talk about whether he was going to resign or whether he's going to get divorced or what, what he was going to do about this, uh, you know, this investigation. It turns out he was coming to announce the retaliatory strikes against bin Laden and Al Qaeda uh, for the embassy bombings. And it was just such this jarring, you know, split screen situation where on the one hand, obviously we have this, you know, domestic scandal, tawdry and, and ugly and partisan. And on the other hand, you had this, 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 what was a, this enormous threat that we didn't fully perceive at the time. It is necessary to remember the context of the time. According to the 9-11 Commission, quote, until 1996, hardly anyone in the U.S. government understood that Osama bin Laden was an inspirer and organizer of the new terrorism. U.S. government assessments or references to bin Laden from the early 90s referred to him as a financier of terrorism and not much else. This will be discussed in greater detail in the next episode.
Within Al-Qaeda, the embassy plots were known as Operation Kaaba and Operation Al-Aqsa, the former a reference to the giant cube at the center of the Grand Mosque in Mecca, the latter a reference to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, the third holiest site in the Islamic religion. According to journalist Lawrence Wright, Bin Laden offered several explanations for attacking these targets, because of what he perceived as the invasion of Somalia, because of a supposed American plan to partition Sudan, which Bin Laden said was being developed inside the Nairobi Embassy, and most outlandishly, because the Rwandan genocide was supposedly planned inside the Nairobi and Dar es Salaam embassies. Kenya is one of the largest countries in East Africa, both in geographic size and in population. The CAA World Factbook describes Kenya as, quote, the economic, financial, and transport hub of East Africa. It also shares a 425-mile border with Somalia, which at that point was still experiencing domestic political instability a few years after UN peacekeepers had left the country. According to then-U.S. Ambassador to Kenya Prudence Bushnell, Kenya was home to many individuals and organizations from throughout Sub-Saharan Africa with sketchy backgrounds. Were there any concerns about spillover refugees or unsavory characters coming from Somalia? Oh, good heavens. Not only from Somalia. <laughs> Nairobi <laughs> was the haven of, <laughs> we, had, um, we had Sudanese. John Garang lived in Nairobi. We had Rwandan Hutus who perpetrated the genocide, and we had Rwandan Tutsis who fled the genocide. We had Somali warlords coming in and out. It was, oh, we had the Lord's Resistance Army from Uganda coming in and out. So it was the Casablanca <laughs> of uh, of East Africa at the time, because very porous borders, um, corrupt, many corrupt officials, and oh, two international airports, and a cosmopolitan city with wonderful weather. Kenya also had loose laws regulating the movement of money in and out of the country, regardless of its origin or source, which added to the country's appeal for criminals and terrorists in the region. In 1998, the American Embassy was located in the heart of Nairobi. It was built during the early 80s, and the State Department had a 99-year lease on the property. It was five stories high and had an estimated 100 to 120 employees, American and Kenyan, who worked there. It also shared a parking lot with neighboring Ofundi House and the Commerce Bank building. The Embassy also had an underground garage and delivery dock. This was where Al-Qaeda intended to place the Nairobi truck bomb before detonation. At the time, it was one of the largest embassies in Sub-Saharan Africa. The idea of attacking the Nairobi embassy can be traced as far back as late 1993. According to the Department of Justice, Anas Alibi and other Al-Qaeda operatives discussed it as a possibility at the time. The motive? U.S. participation in Operation Restore Hope in Somalia. Nothing ever became of it at the time, possibly because the United States withdrew from Somalia in the wake of the Black Hawk Down incident. Ambassador Bushnell points out another factor to keep in mind. The Nairobi Embassy was not as secure compared to other American embassies around the world at the time. We were highly vulnerable, very easy to blow up because there was absolutely none of the offset that, depart that federal government regulations demanded. But because there was no money to 
provide the security we, and by the way, 83% of the other embassies around the world needed, it was waived. The offset was waived. So that was why you were able to get right next to the embassy with a ton of TNT and detonate. She raised the security issue and cable sent back to State Department headquarters in Washington. For two years, I had been telling the Department of State that this was a dangerous embassy, a vulnerable embassy. I was incessant in my um, cables because I had spent three years going around Africa. I knew dangerous embassies when I saw them. I also knew death. And, you know, that things don't happen. Oh, yeah, they do, because I've seen it happen. So I am now personally responsible. This is important. The only Senate-confirmed government official in the United States to get a presidential letter saying he, she is personally responsible for the lives of Americans is a U.S. ambassador. Personally responsible. So I go to an embassy I know is vulnerable, no-brainer. I start sending cables back and I'm told um, to stop nagging, which only made me um, send more cables back. i the four-star Tony Zinni, who was head of CENTCOM, came to Nairobi. He had force protection issues. He understood what I was talking about. He volunteered to send a vulnerability team, assessment team, um, because the department said we can't afford to send one. So Tony said, fine, well, DOD will. And they said, mind your own damn business, um, at which point I sent more cables back. And finally... In May of 1998, wrote a personal letter to the Secretary of State voicing my concern and alluding to threats we had gotten and the walk-in. I never got a response from the Secretary, which didn't surprise me. One other factor to keep in mind for both Kenya and Tanzania. According to data analyzed by the University of Pittsburgh, there were 264 attacks on American diplomatic installations between 1987 and 1997. Of these, only seven were in Africa, and only six attacks worldwide were car bombs, none of those in Africa. The number of attacks on American diplomatic installations fell from 43 in 1991 to just five in 1997. In other words, there were little, if any, expectations of an attack on American facilities on the African continent by 1998. The University of Pittsburgh study notes that Al-Qaeda began sending members to Kenya as early as 1993, where they set up businesses and NGOs to assist in their operations in East Africa. In late 1993, a double agent working for both the U.S. government and Egyptian Islamic Jihad named Ali Mohammed arrived in Kenya to begin surveillance on potential American and Western targets. The order from bin Laden to, quote, militarize Al-Qaeda's East Africa cell came at some point in 1997. The cell would be led by Abdullah Ahmed Abdullah, also known by the alias Abu Mohammed al-Masri. According to former FBI agent Ali Sufan, Al-Qaeda's military committee gave the authorization for the Africa embassy attacks in the spring of 1998. August 1st, 1998, East Africa cell leader Abdullah Ahmed Abdullah orders all Al-Qaeda members in Kenya to leave the country by August 6th. August 4th, 1998, 
Egyptian Islamic Jihad releases a statement threatening retaliation against the United States because of its involvement in the recent apprehension of members of an Egyptian Islamic Jihad cell in Albania. That same day, Abdullah Ahmed Abdullah takes the two Nairobi bombers on a final reconnaissance mission to the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi. He shows them the route and the location where the truck bombs should be detonated. August 7, 1998. In Washington, Congress is on its annual month-long recess. Much of the country and political class is obsessing over the ongoing Monica Lewinsky scandal. President Clinton was scheduled to be deposed before a grand jury just 10 days later. Half a world away, faxes claiming responsibility for the embassy attacks are sent to London in the early hours of the morning. The group claiming credit for the bombings was called Islamic Army for the Liberation of the Holy Places. Keep in mind, the faxes were sent before the attacks were carried out. At 9.45 a.m. local time in Nairobi, a truck filled with explosives is leaving the house at 43 New Runda Estates and making its way to the American Embassy. The truck is being driven by a suicide terrorist named Azam. His real name was Jihad Muhammad Ali Al-Maki, originally from Saudi Arabia. He was also the cousin of Abd al-Rahim al-Nashiri, the future mastermind of Al-Qaeda's attack on the USS Cole. Riding with Azam was another Saudi named Mohammed Rashid Daoud al-Ohali. Upon arrival, a federal court document says al-Ohali threw a grenade-like device at a guard outside the embassy. This initial explosion caught the attention of people in nearby streets and buildings, some of which actually moved closer to investigate. Azam pulled out a gun and started firing shots at the guards from inside the truck. The garage entrance was still protected by a drop arm, secured with a padlock that could only be controlled by the security guards. This meant that the truck would go no further than the rear parking lot. That morning, then-U.S. Ambassador to Kenya Prudence Bushnell was attending a meeting with the Kenyan Minister of Commerce. It was set to take place on the 21st floor of the Cooperative Bank Building, which was two doors away from the American Embassy. This is how she recalls the events of that morning. The press had left. The tea had been served. We had had a cup and we're getting down to business when I heard a noise that sounded like a blast. And I thought maybe it was an implosion that they were doing. Um, there was some um, construction going on. And I asked the minister, is there construction going on in the area? He said, no, I don't think so. He got off the couch. We were sitting together next to each other on the couch. He got off the couch. He walked toward the window, as did everybody else in the office. There were very large a bank of windows on one wall. For whatever reason, um, I do not know. I was the last one up. I didn't get God, um, I didn't get near to the window before a freight train percussive blast threw me back. Um, and I don't, I was, I don't know if I was, I don't know how long I was unconscious. I don't think very long because what I remember was dream. Um, first of all, the, the teapot, teacup was rattling because the building was swaying. I'm on the 22nd floor and I thought the building was going to collapse. And I have never had this experience before. I thought I was going to die. At approximately 10.30 a.m. local time, Azam detonated the truck bomb. Al-Qaeda chose that time for the attacks for a very specific reason. 
because that was when Muslims were supposed to be praying at the mosque. Former FBI agent Ali Sufan wrote in his memoir, quote, Therefore, Al-Qaeda's theologians argued anyone killed in the bombing could not be a real Muslim as he wasn't at prayer, and so his death would be an acceptable consequence. It should also be noted that the attack took place on a Friday, the Muslim Holy Day. Azam's accomplice Alawali was supposed to die in the operation, but he didn't. After throwing the grenade at the embassy guard, he decided not to stick around for the detonation and started running. Alawali was later interrogated by FBI agent Stephen Godin. This account is from Godin's testimony during the embassy bombings trial. Quote, Alawali says at that point, Azam starts shooting directly at the U.S. Embassy with a pistol. And Alawali explains between Azam firing the pistol at the embassy and the loud explosion that was created from when he threw the stun grenade, people started to scatter. And Alawali explains to me at this point he realized that his mission is complete, that he did exactly what he was instructed to do. His mission was to help Azam get the truck as close as possible to the embassy and to scatter away the Kenyan people in and around the area. Alawali told me that at that point it was no longer necessary for him to die in the attack. Alawali explained to me that he was fully prepared to die carrying out the mission and that that would equate to being a martyr, to reach martyrdom dying in completion of your mission. But to die after your mission has already been complete, Alawali explains to me, is not martyrdom, it's suicide. Alawali survived the explosion, but suffered injuries to his hands, back, and face, for which he was later hospitalized. While at the hospital, he dumped a set of keys that opened the padlock on the back of the truck bomb, as well as three bullets he had for a gun that he left inside the truck. He was interviewed by Kenyan police two days after the explosion, who then handed him over to the FBI. Alawali later told Agent Godin several reasons why the Nairobi Embassy was targeted. First, there was a large American presence at the Embassy. Second, the Ambassador was a woman, and if she were killed, it would generate more publicity for the attack. Third, there were Embassy personnel in Nairobi who were responsible for work in Sudan, where the U.S. Embassy had been closed down. Fourth, there was a number of Christian missionaries at the Nairobi Embassy. And finally, because it was an easy target. Ambassador Bushnell was knocked out and suffered minor injuries during the attack. She and other survivors in the Cooperative Bank building made their way down the stairwell and discovered a chaotic scene outside. Embassy survivors formed response teams, set up a security command, and a crisis control center inside a suburban office building that was home to USAID. It would serve as the acting U.S. Embassy in Nairobi for months after the attack. Ambassador Bushnell took a phone call from President Clinton later in the day, which she recalled in her memoir. She described them repeatedly emphasizing to secure the embassy's perimeter. One of their main tasks over the next few days was a full accounting of who had been in the embassy at the time of the attack and who had survived. The embassy lost 44 staffers. 12 of them were Americans. The rest were Kenyans. The carnage in the buildings and on the streets of Nairobi was awful. Windows were shattered in almost all the nearby buildings. The three-story Ufundi house collapsed, leaving scores of people trapped in the rubble. Those who could walk away from the scene did. Others had to be assisted or carried out on a stretcher. The final count was 213 dead, including an estimated 200 Kenyan civilians, and as many as 5,000 who were injured by the blast. Local hospitals were overwhelmed by victims of the explosion seeking medical treatment. According to the Accountability Review Board's findings, quote, the majority of the Kenyan casualties resulted from the collapse of the adjacent Afundi building, 
flying glass from the nearby co-op bank building and other buildings located within a two to three block radius. Other casualties were pedestrians or motorists in the crowded streets next to the embassy. Many of the injured had been drawn to come forward to investigate the sound of a Wally stun grenade. In doing so, they put themselves closer to the blast that followed. Many of the injuries were caused by flying shards of glass, which hit people who had gotten close to the windows to see what was going on outside. The attack coincided with the 8th anniversary of Operation Desert Shield. At 3.30 a.m. New York time, Assistant U.S. Attorney Patrick Fitzgerald called FBI agent Dan Coleman to inform him of the bombings. Quote, Now it begins, Fitzgerald told him. Four hundred and fifty miles to the south and nine minutes later, at around 10.39 a.m. local time, another bomb exploded outside the U.S. Embassy in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Eleven people were killed and 85 were injured. Tanzania is the largest and most populous country in East Africa, roughly twice the size of California according to the CIA World Factbook. By the late 90s, Muslims and Christians accounted for about 35 and 30 percent of the population. According to a University of Pittsburgh study, quote, Historically fragile Muslim-Christian relations are a result of a belief that the Muslim community is victimized by the Tanzanian government. Further complicating the local tensions is the fact that Christians do control parts of the government and civil service. Tensions between Christians and Muslims were not new. The Tanzanian government created the Bakwata Muslim Council during the 60s to help mediate the conflict. The Pittsburgh study notes, quote, this pro-government body would be the dominant voice for the Muslim community, and its weak efforts to represent many of its constituents' concerns steadily contributed to the dissatisfaction and restlessness within the Muslim population. Tanzanian law prohibits preaching if it incites a person against other religions, according to the State Department's report on international religious freedom for the year 1999. In February of 1998, police arrested a popular Muslim leader for violating this law. The arrest resulted in widespread riots in an area of Dar es Salaam. Police killed three people and arrested approximately 200 Muslims. There were allegations that police tortured and sexually humiliated a group of Muslim women who had been arrested and forced them to sing Christian songs. Another round of riots broke out a month later, after police canceled the demonstration protesting the treatment of these female detainees. According to the University of Pittsburgh, quote, Against the backdrop of tensions between Muslim activists and Bakwara and increased antagonism between the Muslim and Christian communities, Al-Qaeda was able to find fertile ground to sow the seeds of its network, thereby later securing the information and connections in the area that were necessary to successfully execute the bombing in Dar es Salaam. Quote, High levels of corruption and non-existent measures establishing accountability in Kenya and Tanzania prior to 2003 facilitated the ease with which fake NGOs could be established as safe havens for terrorists. In Tanzania, the interests of many societal groups were poorly represented, thereby fueling a large and diverse NGO presence in the country that sometimes enhanced the scope for outside influence. The rampant corruption in Tanzanian immigration regulation enabled foreign Al-Qaeda members to gain citizenship and later establish small businesses and NGOs. On top of all of that, Tanzania was also housing the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, which was prosecuting war criminals implicated in the genocide. This is the social and political environment in Tanzania at the time of the bombing that Al-Qaeda was somewhat able to exploit for its own ends. John Lang had been the chargé d'affaires at the embassy since his arrival in the country almost eight months earlier. 
He was in the country to serve as the embassy's deputy chief of mission, but because there was no ambassador at the time, the spent Lang was the acting ambassador until the Senate-confirmed replacement arrived. That morning, he was in the middle of a meeting with other staff. They had just done the weekly security drill organized by the embassy marines. We had this meeting going on uh, then uh, to talk about political and economic uh, measures. And then at 10.39 in the morning on Friday, August 7th, 1998, um, I heard a low rumbling sound and I was seated in my office but in the section where there was a sofa and several chairs, and we had about 10 people in the office, I was seated with my back to the exterior wall, uh, and there was a high window uh, behind me uh, uh, that was, uh, uh, one could not look out uh, of the window unless one stood up. And um, after I heard this low rumbling sound for one or two seconds, there was this blast and the glass of the window blew in over my head and landed on the people in front of me. And US government facilities overseas that are in any uh, threatening uh, situation always have uh, glass with a shatter resistant window film on it. So the glass came out not in shards that could have blinded the people, but instead in sheets. Uh, and that uh, caused some uh, minor injuries, but no one was badly hurt. There was uh, there were some people bleeding uh, in that situation, but uh, as I said, no one was badly hurt. Though he was acting ambassador, Lang had been using the office belonging to the deputy chief of mission. That decision would ultimately save his life. I was using my the office that I was assigned as the deputy chief of mission, even though I was the acting ambassador for nine months, I did not move into the ambassador's office. But the ambassador's office was on the side of the building where the bomb had gone off uh, in uh, on Libon Road, uh, uh, right next to the uh, gate, but it was still outside of the embassy perimeter. And uh, the security officer later told me that if I'd been in the ambassador's chair, uh, even in my role as acting ambassador, I probably would have been killed. There were several reasons why the death toll and the damage in Tanzania was much less than in Kenya. First, the embassy was in a suburban neighborhood about two miles outside of the Dar es Salaam city center. Instead of being surrounded by other office buildings packed together in close proximity, as was the case in Nairobi, the Dar es Salaam neighborhood was in a neighborhood where the buildings were spread apart from each other and not taller than three stories. Its neighbors included the French embassy, the Nigerian embassy, and the Russian ambassador's residence. The neighborhood was located near the Musasani Peninsula and the Indian Ocean, which meant the impact from the blast was spread out over a wider area, rather than being concentrated into one compact zone with multiple buildings in close proximity. Second, the building was originally built by the Israelis to serve as their embassy. The Americans took it over and moved in in May of 1980. Listen to former Chargé d'Affaires John Lang describe the building he worked in. Yeah, for the purposes of uh, the building itself, where we had uh, all the State Department functions uh, and the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, military attaché, um, we it, it was. I thought it was a bit of a rabbit warren. It was uh, built in a, a, a in a, a, with varying uh, floors, about three floors total. It was in this suburban environment, uh, but um, you uh, they they weren't like normal floors of a building, you would walk uh, 
um, through half a floor and then you find steps and we'll go up them. And, and the steps to the ambassador's suite and the deputy chief of mission suite where I was uh, housed as in my office um, were, were very narrow. And I actually had this vision of uh, the Israelis when they built the embassy uh, trying to protect themselves from having uh, the uh, uh, Palestinian uh, terrorists uh, coming up uh, uh, and you could block this uh, narrow stairwell uh, easier uh, than if it was built in a different way. Uh, it, it, uh, and uh, the, the building itself had very thick walls, uh, it, the, the high windows, uh, windows that were elevated over the normal. So you wouldn't just look out the window. Uh, you had to stand up to look out the window. It was really built for uh, security purposes but it was built in about 1960 and it, it was really an unpleasant place to work because of the way it was structured. Third, unlike the embassy in Nairobi, Dar es Salaam had a protective perimeter wall. It was at least 10 feet high, one foot thick and made of concrete. Regulations at the time called for a minimum of 100 feet of distance from the perimeter wall to the first building inside the compound. At the Dar es Salaam embassy at that time, the distance was 40 to 50 feet. According to Lang, the reason for the 100-foot distance from the perimeter wall is the fact that concrete cannot withstand the blast caused by an estimated 2,000 pounds of TNT. Though it was outdated in terms of current regulations, the building that housed the American embassy in Dar es Salaam was grandfathered in because of its age. That, that was one of the fundamental problems the State Department had at that time, even though there had been bombings in Beirut and Kuwait of U.S. embassies and, and facilities in the early 80s, was there just wasn't enough money to build secure embassies. Um, and so uh, Dar es Salaam uh, eventually would have been replaced as the embassy building, uh, but it was not... Um, uh, on, uh, high enough on the list because there were other areas that were thought to be more vulnerable and uh, less uh, uh, less secure and, and, and more in danger. So um, uh, even though everybody knew it didn't meet the, the standards uh, of what was then called the Foreign Buildings Office uh, for security, um, we had to live with it. Fourth, like most American embassies and consulates around the world, there was a local security force guarding the exterior. People would have to go through them to get through the outside gate and into the embassy compound. These local security guards would account for almost half of the casualties of the Dar es Salaam bombing. We ended up having there 11 people who died in Dar es Salaam and uh, uh, 213 who died in Nairobi. Uh, and of those 11, five were security officers, these people who were paid local prevailing wages, but uh, really not uh, not all that much. It was like a dollar an hour. Uh, and uh, I still remember, and everybody who was at the embassy and, and survived remembers, uh, the, the woman who was uh, a young woman, uh, married with um, a child uh, who had this wonderful smile. And she would uh, greet you as you came into the embassy and uh, uh, through the gatehouse uh, showed your uh, uh, identification card and then walked uh, uh, toward the building itself. Uh, and she um, was one of those who died in, in, that, uh, uh, in the bombing. Fifth, there was a water tank truck with two people at the embassy that morning. They were there to fill the embassy's water tanks with fresh drinking water because the Dar es Salaam water supply was unreliable. The truck was trying to leave the embassy when the bomber was approaching. Because of the water truck, the bomber was unable to penetrate the outer perimeter and get inside the embassy compound. 
The water truck absorbed some of the blast from the explosion, which otherwise would have damaged the perimeter wall and the embassy compound itself. One of the marines on his way back to the embassy that morning when the bomb exploded would later recall seeing the water tank truck coming down from a height of three stories. The driver and his assistant were both killed. Another factor to consider was that the Dar es Salaam bomb only had one person to deliver it. In this case, it's a suicide bomber with the nom de guerre Ahmed the German. His real name was Hamdan Khalif Allah Awad, originally from Egypt. Prosecutors were only able to determine his identity much later through phone records. On August 6th and 7th, he called his family in Alexandria and told them he was about to quote, leave this life. Compare Ahmed the German's delivery and detonation of the Dar es Salaam bomb to Azam, who had Muhammad Alawali riding with him to help clear the path to the bomb upon arriving at the Nairobi embassy. David Kelly was a federal prosecutor who traveled to Kenya and Tanzania to oversee the investigations in both countries after the attacks. What do you remember about what you saw and heard on the ground when you were in Kenya and Tanzania? I think that, uh, I'm not sure if this answers your question, but the thing that um, escaped most people is the devastation um, to innocent people um, that there were um, people who were blocks away from those bombs, who are maimed for life, who are blinded for life, who are disfigured, who are killed. Um, innocent people, innocent nationals had nothing to do with the U.S. And, you know, we obviously brought that to light in the trials of those cases and had many people testify. Um, but it was really hard to grasp. Um, you know, while people were reading reports of it, I think. In the U.S., most people focused on the fact that our embassies had been attacked. Um, but on the ground in those countries, what people really focused on was the, uh, the impact on the lives of innocent people. Omar bin Laden described Al-Qaeda's Kandahar compound during the summer of 1998 as a, quote, disturbed beehive. His father would not tell him what was going on, saying, it is not for you to know, it is the family business. On August 7, 1998, Osama bin Laden was listening to the news on the radio. Shortly after, he announced, quote, All men of fighting age prepare to leave Kandahar. They relocated to another camp, where at about 12.30 local time, they heard news of the car bomb explosions at the embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. Omar bin Laden recalled that moment in his memoir, writing, quote, The breath left my body. I studied my father's face. In my life, I had never seen him so excited and happy. His euphoria spread quickly to his commanders and throughout the ranks, with everyone laughing and congratulating each other. I soon heard someone shout that a successful strike had been made against the enemy, America. With reports coming in about the terrific damage and loss of life, the fighters celebrated by firing their weapons into the air. I heard some of the fighters boast about how the explosives for the bombing had been prepared in one of the homes of the ammunition experts and then hidden in the gardens where Al-Qaeda children played. Back at CIA headquarters, it didn't take long to figure out who was responsible. Here are former CTC analysts Diana Balsinger and Barbara Sood. What, what's the reaction in-house? What happened? Two things. You had two levels happening in CTC. At the mid-level management uh, level, you had a little bit of initial bickering over who had the lead on this. Was this bin Laden? Or was this other Sunni groups that other branches did? 
at the worker bee level, I can tell you that uh, first thing I did is I went to knock on Mike Scheuer's door and I said, if you want me, you've got me. And some of the uh, desk officers in Alex were walking over to some of the desk officers in the other branches whose senior leaders were fighting and saying, hey, do you have this for me? Do you have that for me? The worker level coordination was, I would say at the branch level and below, was automatic. And I was personally, I was on the uh, Africa bombing task force within the hour. And things got going immediately. There was really no hesitation in the desk officers that we're who's where, what can we find out to track down who did this, where are they, uh, you know, what can we do to punish the perpetrators and even more importantly, make absolutely sure that another embassy isn't about to go up in a second because our first assumption, now when we look back and in hindsight, okay, it was a double embassy bombing. What we didn't know at the time, was it a double embassy bombing or was it a quadruple embassy bombing that, you know, Uganda or Namibia or, you know, who knows where, might go up next. I mean, did you personally, did you think Bin Laden right away or were you sort of open-minded and waiting for the evidence to come in? Like how long did it, in your mind, it take you to make the connection? I would think the fact that I walked to Mike to volunteer myself answers that I was immediately convinced that, I mean, frankly, and here I'm not talking great insider genius, when I say the working level people immediately started collaborating, it's because we knew it was Bin Laden. And I won't go into details of how we knew it was Bin Laden, but there was no debate. Oh, I, sh I would say above the working level, there may have been some debate, but not the people who were reading the traffic. How long did it take you to make the connection to Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda? Oh, immediately. Because um, they published, the, uh, they said it was Islamic Front for the Liberation of the Holy Places, but we already knew because, remember, the cell was taken down in Kenya previously. Right. And then, of course, there was El Hali. And I noticed in Peter Bergen's book, Islamic Osama bin Laden, I know, that he talks about El, El Hali, and he was the one who chickened out of being a suicide attacker. Yeah. And he was the only person that was burned on his back instead of his front so uh, or wasn't in pieces um yes yeah. exactly so there was there he, was something he, in, he connected steven simon says they arrived at the same conclusion at the white house i think you know our assessment was virtually instantaneous you know it had to have been you know, bin Laden. It was consistent with what he had threatened. It was consistent with threat reporting that the United States had received uh, prior to those bombings. It was um, 
consistent with Al-Qaeda's MO. Uh, so I, I think we just we just assumed, at least you know, at the NSC, that uh, this was a bin Laden orchestrated operation. In a legal or juridical sense, you know, it was more complicated because you know you had to get the FBI out there and get the forensic evidence and you know do your investigation and really document um, uh, Al Qaeda's role. You know, really make that case. And for the purposes of um, uh, a military response uh, under the laws of war and all that, it was just, it was just important, um, uh, you know, to make the case. But, but it was pretty clear um, virtually immediately that, you know, that it was al-Qaeda. Because the Dar es Salaam embassy was damaged from the attacks and was now a crime scene, John Lang moved the staff to his residence immediately after the attack, which was the secondary evacuation point. It would serve as an acting embassy for the next several days until a more secure long-term location could be found. Lang took phone calls from President Clinton and Secretary of State Madeleine Albright later that afternoon. The Tanzanian government sealed off access to the road leading to the embassy, which helped preserve evidence for the FBI investigators. Lang would later give tours of the embassy exteriors to the current and former presidents of Tanzania as well as the Secretary General from the Organization for African Unity, so they could view the damages for themselves. More than 900 FBI agents were deployed overseas in the aftermath of the attacks to assist in the investigation. At the time, they were the largest deployment in the history of the Bureau. Pat DeMuro was one of them. He was deployed to Nairobi. Well, we land in Nairobi after the bombing. As I said, we, we took a star lifter. And at the peak of the investigation, there were 500 agents. Um, that when we landed, I turned to a supervisor that I had taken with me and an agent. And I said, listen, they're set up at the Canadian embassy because there's no communications here. We really, it, we, we were traveling all day. Everybody was exhausted. I said, I need the two of you to go because there's going to be phone calls coming in and something of, of significance might come in. Sure enough, the next morning I'm talking to them and there was there were several calls. They dealt with several calls, but one sounded very interesting. One uh, was an individual telling us that there was somebody at a at a at a hotel that came back after the bombing that was all bloodied, and he was going outside to make phone calls and was acting very very strangely. So I said, "There's something to this one. We've got to pay attention to this," and we developed the individual to provide us more information to meet with us. Uh, it turned out that the person's uh, uncle had actually fought with bin Laden in Somalia. And in telling us about this individual, we eventually rendered him with the authorities, the criminal investigative division in Nairobi. That was Al-Awali. And he was, he was, his back was bloody because remember he ran from the bomb scene. So his back, he got hit with shrapnel. Um, Eventually, he tells us the story that he went to the hospital and he took the bullets he had and threw them in a garbage can. Well, we had recovered those bullets. We had recovered those bullets from the hospital. And why is that important? Because it gives credibility to what he's saying. And we were able to prove that he was involved. Who was he calling? He was calling um, Hara in Yemen. The Al-Qaeda switchboard, right? That's right. 
That's right. And and I remember the agency coming to me. They said, uh, you know, this telephone number is significant. Can we can we share that intelligence? Can we have that and, and disseminate that? I said, absolutely. It's a critical piece. So they got it to NSA. The agency had it. We distributed it. This would be a very significant part of the larger pre-9-11 story, in addition to being a major break in the embassy bombings investigation. FBI agents Stephen Godin and John Antasef were interrogating the injured Muhammad al-Awali. At one point, Antasef demands Awali write down the telephone number he called after the bombing. He went to a local hospital, where he told doctors and nurses that he was a victim of the explosion. While there, Awali disposed of the remaining bullets from his gun in a bathroom, which were later recovered as evidence. After receiving treatment, he left the hospital and called a phone number in Yemen. He reported what happened and asked that somebody send him a passport and money so he could leave the country. Awali would receive $1,000 and use some of that money to buy new clothes. According to Ali Sufan, he was planning his escape from Nairobi when he was caught. Back in the interrogation room, Awali wrote down a phone number in Yemen belonging to a jihadist named Ahmed Muhammad Ali Al-Hada. According to Lawrence Wright, quote, This Yemeni telephone number would prove to be one of the most important pieces of information the FBI would ever discover, allowing investigators to map the links of the Al-Qaeda network all across the globe. Ahmed Al-Hada is a Yemeni member of Al-Qaeda and a veteran who fought with Osama bin Laden during the Afghan Jihad in the 80s. His own family is described by U.S. officials as an Al-Qaeda supercell. His son-in-law was Khalid al-Midar, one of the first two Al-Qaeda operatives to come to the United States and a future hijacker on American Airlines Flight 77. His other son-in-law was Mustafa Abdul Qadir Abed al-Ansari, a Yemeni whose name turned up on an FBI terrorist alert in 2002. One of his sons, Samir al-Hada, was a suspected Al-Qaeda courier, wanted in connection with the bombing of the USS Cole. Two years later, he may have accidentally blown himself up with a grenade as he was fleeing from Yemeni security forces. According to CNN, quote, the suspect jumped into a taxi, and as authorities tried to stop the vehicle, the man pulled out a grenade and was apparently trying to throw it when it exploded in his hand, sources said. But the most significant was Ahmed al-Hada himself. He and his Yemen phone number served as Al-Qaeda's switchboard, relaying messages back and forth between Osama bin Laden and other members of the organization from all over the world. The FBI passed Al-Hada's phone number on to the CIA and the National Security Agency so they could exploit it as an intelligence source. This would become a point of controversy later on for several reasons. From a prosecutor's perspective, the embassy bombings presented their own unique circumstances and challenges. Both attacks took place in sovereign countries thousands of miles away from the United States, each with its own judicial system and law enforcement agency. Any subpoena or search warrant issued by an American court was unenforceable abroad. But still, the Department of Justice sent people to Kenya and Tanzania to help put together a legal case that could one day be prosecuted in an American courtroom. They had to create an ad hoc legal framework that would satisfy the judicial systems of both countries for these investigations. Former prosecutor David Kelly explains. Um, what had been happening since, you know, the early 90s, um, when you look at all the different terrorism cases that um, had occurred, including the first World Trade Center cases, um, the Sheikh Rahman case, um, and countless other terrorism investigations that we had been involved in, many of which are not public. Um, 
when the embassy bombings occurred, um, the Attorney General Reno um, turned to U.S. Attorney Mary Jo White and, and on us, meaning principally um, the four of us prosecutors who were dealing with all this stuff, myself, uh, Pat Fitzgerald, Mike Garcia, Ken Karras, to say, whatever you guys have been doing here to fight terrorism, take your show on the road and make it happen overseas. And um, so we have boots on the ground um, within, you know, very short period of time of the embassy bombings in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam and working very closely with the national police in each of those countries in Kenya and um, Tanzania. Um, so, for example, when we when we located or identified possible suspects and places where they may have used that we would want to search, we turn to our hosts, our counterparts in the Kenyan police in the um, and said, so how do we how do we search this? And they, their response was, we just go and kick down the door and, and search. And we said, well, wait a second. We, we can't do that. That's against that's against our constitution. So um, and you just made a good point. How do we do that when we don't have a judge? Well, we don't have a judge who has jurisdiction over there. So the question we, we confronted with was, you know, principally related to the Fourth Amendment, which governs searches and seizures and the Fifth and Sixth Amendment, which governs um, the obtaining of and use of um, uh, statements taken by uh, people who are in custody. So with regard to the Fourth Amendment on searches and seizures, we said, well, we can't get a judge who can come in and sign a warrant that would permit us um, to go and search places. But what we can do, the, the Constitution requires that searches be reasonable. And so what we did was document everything as if we had a judge who had jurisdiction who would approve the search. And so we went through all of that to make sure that what we did overseas um, comported with the U.S. Constitution and we conducted searches that way. When it came to the Fifth Amendment and the Sixth Amendment taking statements, we developed kind of a hybrid Miranda warning um, for the people who, the suspects who we had confronted there um, and said essentially, and this isn't a bumper sticker, but essentially, look, you can't, you know, you, you, if you were in the United States, you'd have the right to a lawyer. Um, and we're not in the United States, so we can't get you a lawyer. But if you want to talk to us and then come back to the U.S. with us, we'll get you a lawyer. And we took statements that way. Now, that worked well as it related to the Fourth Amendment. Um, and then um, we were, my colleagues were litigating the issue concerning the Fifth and Sixth Amendment, the admissibility of post-dress statements for those who had been administered the kind of a hybrid Miranda warning. And on the Fourth Amendment issue on the searches, the judge said, that's fine, you did the right thing. On the Fifth and Sixth Amendment, the judge found that that was not acceptable um, and ruled out some of the statements that were taken. Two years later, a federal grand jury would indict 21 members of Al-Qaeda in connection with the bombings, including the leadership. Some were arrested in the weeks and months after the attacks. Others remained fugitives for years, sometimes even decades later. 
White House counterterrorism advisor Richard Clark noted in his memoir, quote, Al-Qaeda had now followed up a fatwa, or religious ruling, earlier in 1998 declaring war on the United States with an actual act of war. President Clinton had spent the majority of the year neck deep in the Monica Lewinsky scandal, amid questions of whether he had ordered a cover-up of the affair or lied to a grand jury. There was much speculation over whether he would resign or be removed from office by Congress. When the embassies were attacked, he and his national security team had to come up with a response. Three days after President Clinton gave videotaped testimony to a grand jury, the Pentagon launched Operation Infinite Reach. In his memoir, Richard Clark wrote that the CIA and the Joint Chiefs of Staff recommended firing missiles at two targets. Almost five years after Black Hawk Down, there would be no ground forces or piloted aircraft involved, presumably to avoid the risk of casualties or prisoners. The first target was a camp at Zawar Kili, located a few miles south of coast in eastern Afghanistan. Intelligence at the time suggested that senior leaders of terrorist groups linked to bin Laden would be meeting, and bin Laden himself might be there. Zawar Kili had also been the site of his February 1998 announcement of a jihad against crusaders and Jews, and his May 1998 press conference. For the second target, they wanted to hit Osama bin Laden financially. They eventually settled on Al-Shifa, a pharmaceutical plant in Khartoum, Sudan. According to the 9-11 Commission report, intelligence at the time said Al-Shifa was manufacturing a precursor ingredient for nerve gas, with bin Laden's financial support. He was also thought to be a part owner of the plant. A soil sample from near the plant tested positive for EMPTA, a precursor chemical for VX nerve gas. Richard Clark explained it as, quote, a compound that had been used as a prime ingredient in Iraqi nerve gas. It had no other known use, nor had any other nation employed EMPTA to our knowledge for any purpose. What was an Iraqi chemical weapons agent doing in Sudan? Could Sudan, using bin Laden's money, have hired some Iraqis to make chemical weapons? It seemed chillingly possible. Previous intelligence, in addition to the sworn testimony of Al-Qaeda defector Jamal al-Fadl, were seen as evidence of bin Laden's interest in obtaining chemical and nuclear weapons. August 20th, 1998. According to the U.S. Navy, 73 Tomahawk missiles were fired from two cruisers, two destroyers, and a submarine at the Zawar Keeley camp in eastern Afghanistan, at a cost of $750,000 each. The missiles reached their intended target at approximately 10 p.m. local time, killing 21 Pakistani jihadist volunteers and wounding dozens more. But Osama bin Laden, the intended target, was not there. An after-action review conducted by CIA Director George Tenet concluded that the missiles had missed bin Laden by a few hours. This conclusion was corroborated by Omar bin Laden, who noted in his memoir that his father and his entourage left at training camp near coast on August 20th and headed to Kabul. The camp they had left was hit two hours later. There has been speculation that the Pakistani government tipped off the Taliban or bin Laden that the missile strike was coming their way. There is some factual basis to this theory. Because the missiles were launched from American Navy vessels in the Arabian Sea, and because of Afghanistan's landlocked geography, the missiles had to fly through Pakistani airspace to reach their target in Afghanistan. According to the 9-11 Commission and Richard Clark's memoir, General Joseph Ralston, the Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, had dinner with General Jahangir Karaman, the Pakistani Army's Chief of Staff, on the evening of August 20th. During that meeting, Ralston informed Karamat that the missiles were not coming from India. Another potential leak could have come from former ISI director Hamid Ghul. His obituary in the Los Angeles Times notes, quote, 
despite being removed from office, Gould remained influential. Though unnamed in the 9-11 Commission report, U.S. officials at the time said they suspected Gould of tipping bin Laden off to a failed 1998 cruise missile attack targeting him in Afghanistan. The operation came in response to al-Qaeda attacks on embassies in Kenya and Tanzania that killed 224 people. The official said he contacted Taliban leaders and assured them that he would provide three or four hours warning before any U.S. missile launch. Additional Tomahawk missiles were fired from two destroyers in the Red Sea at Al-Shifa, 2,500 miles away from the Zawar Kili camp. The missiles hit both targets simultaneously at about 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time. This missile strike became a political and public relations debacle for the Clinton administration when it was discovered after the fact that Al-Shifa produced pharmaceuticals and veterinary medicines, not chemical weapons. According to the journalist Lawrence Wright, quote, The result of this hasty strike was that the impoverished country of Sudan lost one of its most important manufacturers, which employed 300 people and produced more than half of the country's medicines, and a night watchman was killed. As a result of a failed attack, journalist Steve Call wrote, quote, Bin Laden's reputation in the Islamic world had been enhanced. He had been shot at by a high-tech superpower, and the superpower missed. Two instant celebratory biographies of Bin Laden appeared in Pakistani stores. Without seeming to work hard at it, Bin Laden had crafted one of the era's most successful terrorist media strategies. The missile strikes were his biggest publicity payoff to date. President Clinton addressed the nation from the Oval Office later that day. Today, I ordered our armed forces to strike at terrorist-related facilities in Afghanistan and Sudan because of the imminent threat they presented to our national security. I want to speak with you about the objective of this action and why it was necessary. Our target was terror. Our mission was clear, to strike at the network of radical groups affiliated with and funded by Osama bin Laden, perhaps the preeminent organizer and financier of international terrorism in the world today. Everyone involved in Infinite Reach said the goal was to kill bin Laden. Here's Bill Clinton's National Security Advisor Sandy Berger testifying before the 9-11 Commission in 2004. Let me say, first of all, there could not have been any doubt about what President Clinton's intent was after he fired 60 Tomahawk cruise missiles at bin Laden in August 98. I assure you they were not delivering an arrest warrant. The intent was to kill bin Laden. Further complicating matters at the time was a just-released movie titled Wag the Dog. It was a political satire about an American president whose spin doctor creates a fictional war to distract the public from the sex scandal that is threatening his client's presidency. It was a surreal case of life imitating art. Peter Baker was a White House correspondent for the Washington Post at the time. And that was the context in which it was happening. Uh, it was impossible not to, to, to see it in that light and, and wonder what the uh, uh, real story was. And remember, of course, the 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 you know the the chemical weapons facility in Sudan that they said that they hit would turn out to be you know a pharmaceutical plant that was not what they had told us it was going to be right that that, that it did not turn out to be uh, the target that they had advertised so there was a lot of questions about that are they are they doing what you just said are they are they putting up a uh, national security uh, crisis in order to distract attention from what was politically the most perilous moment of the Clinton presidency. So it was it was a, re, a remarkably dramatic moment uh, and arguably very consequential. 
A study of the embassy bombings by the University of Pittsburgh valued American expenditures as a result of the attacks at $1.92 billion. In contrast, Al-Qaeda is believed to have spent between ten dollars and $50,000 at the most on their operations. This means that for every dollar Al-Qaeda spent, the United States spent between $38,000 and $192,000. In other words, Al-Qaeda reaped a pretty significant return on its investment. October 8, 1999, Al-Qaeda is designated as a foreign terrorist organization by the U.S. State Department. It may not sound like much, but there are real consequences that come with the FTO designation. It is illegal for a person in the United States to knowingly provide, quote, material support or resources to a designated FTO. How is this applied? An example. The Department of Justice arrested a man in Washington State as he was about to board an international flight in May of 2021. His motive was to travel to Egypt to join the Islamic State. He was charged with attempting to provide material support to a FTO. If convicted, he faces up to 20 years in prison. Representatives or members of a designated FTO can be barred entry into the United States. If they are already in the country, in some cases they can be expelled. Any U.S. financial institution that has possession or control of funds belonging to a designated FTO or its agent must retain possession of those funds and report them to the Treasury Department. There are other benefits to the FTO designation from the government's perspective. Naming and shaming of the organization internationally. Deterring donations or business transactions with an organization and acting as a signal or an example for other countries to encourage them to take similar measures. But a formal designation by the American government was not going to deter Al-Qaeda's plans. In order to understand the attack on the USS Cole that would take place a year later, it is necessary to understand its mastermind, Abdul Rahim al-Nashiri. He was a Saudi veteran of the Afghanistan Jihad during the 80s. According to the 9-11 Commission report and an Office of Military Commission's document, he was part of a group of 30 or some Mujahideen that went to fight Jihad in Tajikistan in 1994. Because, quote, serious fighting failed to materialize, the group returned to Jalalabad, Afghanistan. It was then when Nashiri met Osama bin Laden for the first time. Bin Laden tried to recruit Nashiri to join Al-Qaeda, but Nashiri refused. According to a court document, he found the personal oath all operatives take pledging loyalty to bin Laden to be distasteful. He left Afghanistan and eventually made his way to Yemen. It was there where he got the idea for his first terrorist operation, after seeing U.S. naval and foreign ships off the coast. Sometime around 1996 or 1997, he returned to Afghanistan, where he joined Taliban forces fighting jihad against Ahmad Shah Massoud's Northern Alliance. Bin Laden was still recruiting for, quote, the coming battle with the United States. According to the Office of Military Commissions, Nashiri joined Al-Qaeda in 1998. That same year, he pitched the idea of attacking a U.S. commercial vessel. Bin Laden approved the pitch, though he changed the target to a U.S. naval warship. He provided funding and instructed Nashiri to start planning and sending operatives to Yemen. Nashiri would report directly to Bin Laden, who was the only other person that knew all the details of the operation. Nashiri would be assisted in the operation by two local Yemeni Al-Qaeda coordinators, Jamal al-Badawi and Fad al-Kuso. He would get two volunteers to carry out the suicide attack. Hassan al-Khamri and Ibrahim Thawar, who went by the alias Nibras. Not much is known of their backgrounds, but Nibras was chosen by Osama bin Laden himself to attend an elite training course at an Al-Qaeda training camp in Afghanistan. By the late 90s, Yemen had been a unified country for just short of a decade. 
It has a geographically strategic location along the eastern side of Bab el-Mandeb, the strait where the Red Sea meets the Gulf of Aden. This is a crucial waterway for global shipping heading to and from the Suez Canal. In August of 1999, Nishiri rents a private home with a courtyard in Aden. Over the next several months, he and his co-conspirators acquire a boat and bring it to the rented property. The boat was presumably prepared for the attack here. January 3rd, 2000. Nishiri and other Al-Qaeda operatives move the boat, now rigged with explosives, to the Aden Harbor beachfront. Their intended target was a U.S. naval destroyer, the USS The Sullivans, that was refueling in Aden Harbor. The boat's cargo was too heavy and sank shortly after launch. Nishiri and the others returned the next day to salvage the boat and the explosives. FBI investigators would later learn of this failed attempt in the aftermath of the USS Cole attack. The conspirators regrouped and prepared to try again. In the summer of 2000, they did a test run with a repaired boat and took it for a spin in the harbor. Nishiri would also travel to Afghanistan to meet with Osama bin Laden. While he was over there, they tested the explosives at an Al-Qaeda camp. By the fall, the tests on the explosives that were used during the aborted attack on the Sullivans were successful. In the meantime, the boat used in the initial attempt was refitted to, quote, strengthen the hull and increase the number of fuel tanks. In September, Bin Laden tells Nishiri he wants to replace a suicide terrorist who would drive the boat. Nishiri went to Afghanistan to explain to Bin Laden that the operatives were already trained. Before leaving, he gave Nibras and Al-Khamri instructions to attack the next U.S. warship in the port of Aden. October 12, 2000. At around sunrise that morning, the USS Cole pulled into the Aden Harbor, a few hours ahead of schedule. Like the USS Sullivan's nine months earlier, it had come to Aden for a refueling stop, which was expected to take a few hours. The Cole, a guided missile destroyer based out of Norfolk, Virginia, had been commissioned just four years earlier. Its commanding officer, Kirk Lippold, was a 19-year veteran and a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. He was the third commanding officer in the ship's history and had been on the job in that capacity since June 25, 1999. His crew had a year to train and prepare in anticipation for deployment to the Middle East. The ship left Norfolk on August 8, 2000, crossed the Atlantic, passed the Straits of Gibraltar, and into the Mediterranean Sea. It made port stops in Spain, France, Malta, and Slovenia. By the late afternoon on October 9th, the coal had crossed the Suez Canal and was in the Red Sea. It was headed to Aden for a Navy-ordered fuel stop scheduled for the 12th. According to Commander Lippold's memoir, Naval Forces Central Command chose Aden as its refueling stop because the intelligence at the time considered neighboring Djibouti a bigger terrorism threat than Yemen. There was a, there was a heightened awareness of a terrorist threat but that was true for every ship that had pulled into that port for the last several years. So, you know, we'd been there for two years. USS Cole was the 27th ship to pull into Aden to refuel. So there was absolutely nothing untoward that morning. Former FBI agent Ali Sufa noted that Djibouti had been used as a refueling port for American vessels for years. That changed in January of 1999 because of the then ongoing war between neighboring Eritrea and Ethiopia. Yemen was also the focus of a Clinton administration diplomatic initiative to bring the country into America's sphere of influence, after it had been one of the few to support Saddam Hussein during the first Gulf War. Ali Abdullah Saleh was the president of Yemen at the time. He had been the president of North Yemen since 1978, until he reunified the country in 1990. 
During the Yemeni civil war a few years later, Saleh used Islamic militants to fight against the separatist south. Because of this history, Saleh's government had what essentially amounted to a non-aggression pact with the Islamic radicals in the country. The government would look the other way when it came to their terrorist activities. In return, the terrorists, for the most part, would not carry out attacks on Yemeni soil or against Yemeni interests. In the immediate aftermath of the attack on the coal, President Saleh initially said that what happened was an accident caused by a technical problem on the ship. After evidence was indisputably clear that the coal was deliberately attacked with a bomb, Saleh blamed the Mossad, Israel's intelligence service. Osama bin Laden was once quoted as saying, the ship of Ali Abdullah Saleh is the only ship we have. Omar bin Laden wrote that if his father was no longer welcome in Afghanistan or Pakistan, that he would go to Yemen. To make a long story short, Yemen was not the safest security environment when the USS Cole pulled into Aden that morning. By about 10.30 a.m. local time, the refueling process had begun. It was going faster than expected, around 2,000 gallons a minute. This meant the coal would be able to leave Aden sooner than expected and be on its way for the next leg of its journey. The ship was expected to arrive in Bahrain about five days later. In addition to refueling, the coal had hired a local sewage barge to come and remove sewage and waste that had accumulated on board. The procedure involved a sewage barge and two trash boats. At 11.15 a.m., the barge and two boats left the coal. The crew was told to expect a third boat to come out to the ship to pick up any remaining materials. At some point that morning, the boat to be used in the attack, now repaired and loaded with explosives including TNT and RDX, was brought into the harbor and loaded into the water with a tow truck. At around 11 a.m., Nibras and Al Khamri, the two suicide bombers, get on the boat at the beachfront in the harbor. This time, it doesn't sink. They drive it towards the USS Cole. Keep in mind, the Cole crew is expecting a third boat to come out and finish the sewage removal, so this is not seen as out of the ordinary at the time. Kirk Lippold, the ship's commanding officer, explains. What we didn't know at the time is that what should have happened is the two boats go dump all that stuff, then one of them comes back out to the ship and kind of does cleanup. As they were halfway across the harbor, a third boat came racing across the harbor, slowed, turned by the bow, came down the side of the ship right to the middle and detonated. Unlike what was reported in the press, it was not a Zodiac boat that raced across the harbor and rammed the side of the ship. It in fact was a boat that looked exactly like the garbage barges, about 24 foot in length, middle con center console, two uh, an outboard motor, two guys in it. As it turned and came down the side of the ship, they even stood up and kind of waved at the crew. The young man that was standing the overboard discharge watch up on the bow to make sure we weren't going to spill any fuel, as it went by, it thought to himself, boy, that sure, sure, something just doesn't seem right. Next thing he knew, he was flat on his back with a face full of shrapnel from the explosion. He survived the event. And when the FBI interviewed him in the hospital, as it had gone by and they peeled that moment in time back second by second, what he had actually thought to himself was, boy, that sure is awful clean for a garbage barge. But that was the only indicator that something untoward was going on. There were absolutely no other indicators in the port at that time. So, and, you were and you were expecting another boat. So you thought this guy is business as usual. Exactly. We thought it was the third garbage barge coming to play to do cleanup. And next thing we know, we were in trouble. 
In his memoir, FBI agent Ali Sufan, who was part of the team that investigated the coal attack, wrote, quote, My later review indicated that the sailors and the captain of the USS Cole did everything they could under the circumstances. The fact that the coal was a sitting duck and identified as such by the terrorists was the fault of those responsible for designating Aden as safe port. At such close quarters, it would be next to impossible for sailors on a destroyer to ascertain in a minute or two whether a small boat pulling alongside was a friend or an enemy. Commander Lippold was in his cabin at the time of the attack. 1118, I was sitting at my desk doing the routine paperwork that you do every day when there was a thunderous explosion. You could feel all 505 feet and 8,400 tons of guided missile destroyer suddenly violently thrust up into the right. Power failed. Lights went out. I came into the brace position, grabbing the underside of my desk as everything popped up and slammed back down. The explosion was so powerful, a U.S. military attache would later tell FBI agent Ali Sufan that it was heard as far as two miles away. 17 sailors were killed, and another 39 were wounded. The damage to the ship was extensive. Water was coming in from a 40-foot hole in the port side hull. Fuel was leaking. There were fires and sparks coming off from live wires inside, which could have ignited the fuel and potentially created a larger fire or a second explosion. In spite of the many perilous circumstances in which the ship could have sunk, it didn't. Commander Lippold credits this to his crew. I would say that it really came back to the training of the crew. Throughout those that that year plus when I was getting the ship ready for deployment I kept raising the bar on the standards of performance I kept demanding that they do beyond their job beyond their general quarter assignments and consequently when the blast hit and the announcing system for the ship failed the backup system failed the battery backup for both failed the crew without anyone telling them what to do where to go or what had happened fell back on their training. They were either doing damage control to save the ship, triage to save their shipmates' lives, or security to stop another attack. Nobody initially told them to do that. They took the initiative on their own to go out and make it happen based on their general quarters assignments. And they were doing everything a captain can ask for and expect in a time of crisis. According to Commander Lippold, there was a historical precedent for this type of attack. The closest ones that were not considered applicable to our situation by Navy leadership and training command were the obviously the Tamil Tigers fighting in the Sri Lanka war had launched suicide attacks against the Sri Lankan Navy on a couple of occasions. So while those threats had occurred, they had been on smaller boats, low level, close into shore, but nothing of the order of magnitude that we would experience on USS Cole. Consequently, we never envisioned this type of attack. We never trained for this type of attack. The attack happened during the home stretch of a heated presidential election. Bill Clinton was in the final months of his presidency, as Texas Governor George W. Bush and Clinton's Vice President Al Gore battled it out to succeed him in the Oval Office. The third and final presidential debate took place on October 17th, five days after the attack. It was a town hall format with questions submitted from the audience. None of the selected questions were about the USS Cole, nor did moderator Jim Lehrer specifically ask the candidates about the attack. The only reference to the USS Cole happened when Al Gore extended his sympathies to the families of the killed and wounded, 
as part of his response to a question about health care. George W. Bush also made a reference to the families of the victims before pivoting to his response to the original question. Peter Baker covered both the Clinton and the Bush presidencies. He also wrote the book Days of Fire, Bush and Cheney in the White House. Were you surprised at sort of the the, the really sort of muted response to the coal attack at the time, considering you're in the middle of a you know big camp, you know, in the home stretch of a presidential race? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a, a, a worth going back and looking at. I think you're exactly right, and I think that uh, uh, at the time it got washed away by the election campaign that was going on, and it, it, it did not get the attention that you would have thought it did. And I think it taught uh, of the lesson that you know these actions taking place far from our shores didn't resonate at home in the same way. And, and I, I, you know, and and I think that the lesson that the Al Qaeda uh, people took from that was they could bloody our nose and get away with it in effect. And it was kind of lost in the, in the transition, you know, there was an initial, if I remember correctly, there was an initial, you know, uncertainty about responsibility that they had to, to to do the investigation to to determine it by the time they had you know gotten very far you know this administration was on the way out and was uh, decided to leave things to the next administration the next administration didn't uh, you know embrace it because it hadn't happened on their watch they had the other priorities at the time and kind of so it kind of got lost in that you know in that in that uh, in that moment when when other things were happening and the, and the American government was in the midst of transitioning from one government to another, one party to another. In any other election, a terrorist attack on an American military vessel would be a huge development that would test the two major party candidates and their campaigns. In American political jargon, any last-minute game-changing development during a political campaign is referred to as the October surprise, because elections are held on the first Tuesday in November. It can be something that is specifically damaging to one candidate, like the Access Hollywood video was to Donald Trump, or James Comey's letter informing Congress that the FBI was reopening its investigation of Hillary Clinton's email server. It can also be an event of globally cataclysmic proportions that shifts the dynamics of the race, such as the 2008 financial crisis. The real October surprise of the Bush-Gore race came on November 2nd, four days before the election. A local television affiliate in Maine broke the politically explosive story that George W. Bush had been arrested for driving under the influence near his parents' home in Maine back in 1976. The future Republican presidential candidate, who was 30 years old at the time, paid a $150 fine and had his driving privileges temporarily suspended. Bush's top political strategist Karl Rove would later say that this disclosure may have cost his candidate as many as five states. FBI investigators and Department of Justice prosecutors were sent to Yemen to investigate the attack, just as they had been to Kenya and Tanzania two years earlier. David Kelly happened to be in Cairo at the time of the coal attack. He was in Yemen within 36 hours of the bombing. So I was back, I was on the deck of the coal within, you know, I don't know, within 24, 36 hours of the bombing. And what struck me was not just the devastation, but the shock of the sailors. Now, you got to go back in time, and and I don't mean this critically of the Navy, but they were put in a position where they're essentially sitting ducks. They were told to come into that port. They were told to let husbandry agents, in other words, any boats 
um, carrying supplies were allowed to pull up to the deck of the coal. They weren't told which boats they were they were supposed to were authorized to bring them supplies. Just any boats um, were supposed to come. And so not only were they sitting ducks, but they're basically not intentionally, but basically set up for failure. Um, and that's exactly what happened. One of these boats that looked like a husbandry agent pulled up to the side of the deck and de detonated a bomb. Now, if you go back in time, so that's 21 years ago. And this is before, you know, the country went to war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and before the military was the point of attack on terrorism. And my impression was that you had a lot of these sailors who joined in peacetime, had no intention of engaging in war um, for the most part, many of whom had yet to start shaving. So it looked like you had a bunch of kids on this ship who were completely shell-shocked, who had been set up for um, to be attacked. It just amazed me. Um, you know, and you contrast it now when you have a, you know, a combat ready military, I, I'm not sure that that's what these folks, you know, I think you had a lot of people on board who figured, let me join the Navy and see the world. And, um, they had their, uh, you know, a rude awakening when that, uh, husbandry ship pulled up alongside and, and pulled the trigger on the bomb. As he had in the Africa embassy bombings, Kelly had to negotiate an agreement with a local judge so that any evidence or statements collected by FBI investigators in Yemen would be admissible for use in an American courtroom in a potential prosecution. While he was in Yemen, Kelly got word that a judge back in the United States had put the brakes on the Miranda warnings investigators had used in 1998. On the Fifth and Sixth Amendment, the judge found that that was not acceptable um, and ruled out some of the statements that were taken. Um, now, when that happened, I was actually on the deck of the USS Cole that had been attacked hours, a day and a half before. And what we had decided to do was any suspects that we had identified, we would do the same thing we had done in the, in the, um, in the embassy bombing cases. But I get a phone call, and if you can picture, this is back in 2000, October of 2000, I get a call on my satellite phone. Now, a satellite phone, we didn't have cell phones in those days, not like you have now. And a satellite phone that could make international calls, it was like carrying a brick. So my brick goes off, and it was Pat Fitzgerald and said, whatever you're doing over there on the coal, don't use those same Miranda warnings that we did. So what I implemented was a different process, was to say, if we're going to interview anybody, we're going to give them Miranda warnings just as if we were on the streets of New York. And if somebody invokes their right to have counsel present, what we will do is, is connect by video to a judge and an appointed lawyer in New York with whom they can confer um, in order for us to take statements. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago that lots of people, most people, um, waive the Miranda warnings and we probably interviewed upwards of 100 people, administered the Miranda warnings, and not one invoked their right to have a lawyer present during our questioning. So those were some of the challenges that we had to deal with, but it was important for us if we were going to, you know, at the time, prior to 2001, the government's only real meaningful approach to combating terrorism was through the criminal justice system. Now, people can debate whether or not that was the most effective 
or best strategy, but that's what the strategy was. And what our job was is to try to um, import from overseas evidence. Uh, let me say import from overseas information and turn it into admissible evidence in a courtroom in the U.S. And how we did that all was tied to how we obtained it and what we did to comply with the U.S. Constitution, even though we were in Yemen or in Tanzania or in Nairobi um, or, you know, Timbuktu. I mean, that's what we had to do. FBI agent Ken Maxwell was also deployed to Yemen. Cooperation with the local authorities was not as smooth as it had been in Kenya and Tanzania. Would that be a fair assessment? No, that's fair. It was it was spotty. There were some Yemeni officials that were uh, willing to, uh, you know, fully cooperate. And there were others that were quite reticent. And it was worrisome because um, uh, there was some conjecture that perhaps uh, the the, at least the philosophy of Al Qaeda was um, inherent within some of the uh, the police agencies. And so there was, you know, a trust issue, uh, information flow issue. Yeah, uh, so it's correct. It wasn't as close as it was uh, that we experienced in Africa with the, the, the wonderful cooperation of the Kenyan and Tanzanian National Police Forces. One of the early leads in the case was a 12-year-old Yemeni boy named Hani who saw the bombers load their boat into the water using a crane. They spotted the boy and offered him 100 rials to guard their truck. He agreed to do so and waited. Even after the explosion, he kept waiting for men who would never return to pay him his 100 rials. He eventually left and told his older brothers what had happened. They told him to report it to the police. Hani did so and identified the truck he had been guarding for the bombers, which was still there. Yemeni police took Hani into custody in a local jail. Thanks to the skilled questioning of NCIS agent Bob McFadden, the FBI was able to get more details about the bombers from Hani. After speaking with Hani's family and other local fishermen, they were able to figure out which neighborhood of Aden they had come from. They found the house, which at one point had a boat, where a group of Saudis had been seen and heard going in and coming out of. When FBI investigators were allowed to search the house, they found a gold mine of forensic evidence, hairs and chemical residue from TNT and RDX. After questioning the owner of the property, the FBI found that he had rented it a year earlier to a man identified on the rental lease as Abda Hussein Mohammed. Ali Sufan would later realize that this person had the same middle names as Nashiri, only in a different order. When shown photographs of Nashiri, Hani and other local fishermen positively identified him as the man they had known as Abda. They also learned that he had connections to a local Al-Qaeda operative named Jamal Badawi. Ali Sufan wrote in his memoir that by the time the USS Cole was towed out of Aden on October 29, 2000, quote, We had what is known as the intelligence case, that Al-Qaeda was behind the attack. We had, in other words, enough evidence to remove any doubt among senior U.S. government officials, but it wouldn't be enough to convict those responsible in a U.S. court of law. Cooperation with local law enforcement was a major difference in this case. The cooperation between the FBI and their Kenyan and Tanzanian counterparts after the 1998 bombings was almost seamless. Two years later, the Bureau's dealings with the Yemeni government and security forces could be problematic at times. There were legitimate questions about the loyalties of some elements of the local security services. Were they sympathetic to Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda? There were also security threats against the visiting American investigators. On top of all this, they were investigating a crime scene in Al-Qaeda's backyard. Some mistakes were made locally. 
According to Ali Sufan, the local embassy staff put together a translated version of a Rewards for Justice poster, asking locals for help with the investigation. It would be published in Arabic in local newspapers. Sufan wrote, quote, I opened a paper the next day to look at the ad, written of course in Arabic. I saw that rather than asking for cooperation, it warned the local population not to cooperate with us. Apparently no one in the embassy had noticed the colossal mistake. But all that is completely separate from the personality conflicts between John O'Neill and Barbara Bodine, the U.S. ambassador in Yemen at the time. Former FBI agent Pat DeMuro ran the National Security Division while O'Neill deployed to Yemen for the coal investigation. The ambassador and John did not get along at all. Uh, the ambassador wouldn't allow us to bring long guns. Uh, we could only have our handguns. And there was constant intelligence coming in that they were going to attack us. In fact, I remember getting a call one time from uh, Mary Galligan saying, you know, we've only got our, our, our firearms, our short arms, and uh, there's information that they're coming tonight. They're going to they're gonna attack the embassy. And she said, we may not survive. I've talked to the Marines, and they're going to do their best to keep them down this hall and out of, out of, our, uh, our, out of our hair. But they know that it's not going to be successful. And I remember thinking to myself, this, this is crazy. We need to be able to give people what they need to protect themselves. So the ambassador was a real problem in that investigation. And unfortunately, um, I don't think the Bureau supported John um, in furtherance of that. Former prosecutor David Kelly had a similar recollection of the problems with the ambassador. The other story I heard from some of the, my FBI contacts that I spoke to for this was that uh, the collaboration between the the uh, the uh, Justice Department, the FBI, and their counterparts in Yemen wasn't as smooth as it had been in Kenya and Tanzania. Wasn't, and and I placed that largely at the feet of the ambassador. Um, she had her own agenda, um, and was trying to, I want to say, push this under the rug. Um, but she had been, as I recall it. Um, pushing to have the president come to visit Yemen. Um, and um, she was not nearly as accommodating to us as what we had experienced in, in Tanzania and Kenya, not even close. Everything was a battle. Um, and so it was a much difficult, much more difficult road to hoe with, with her um, in, in Yemen. According to the 9-11 Commission report, Ambassador Bodine initially tried to get the Yemeni government to allow them to carry weapons. Quote, the Yemenis balked at letting Americans openly carry long guns, rifles, shotguns, automatic weapons. O'Neill left Yemen in late November to go home for the Thanksgiving holiday. When he tried to come back, Ambassador Bodine personally refused O'Neill's re-entry request. Several years later, she wrote an editorial for the Los Angeles Times disputing her portrayal in the ABC television miniseries The Path to 9-11. Quote, According to the Mythmakers, a battle ensued between a cop obsessed with tracking down Osama bin Laden and a bureaucrat more concerned with the feelings of the host government than the fate of Americans and the realities of terrorism. I know this is false. I was there. I was the ambassador. June 16, 2001. FBI Director Louis Free and John O'Neill ordered the evacuation of FBI personnel in Yemen because of security threats. A federal grand jury would later indict Jamal al-Badawi and Fad al-Kuso on 51 counts in connection with the bombing of the USS Cole. 
The indictment also named al-Qaeda leaders Osama bin Laden and Saif al-Adil as unindicted co-conspirators, as well as Tafiq bin Atash and Abdul al-Nashiri. Within eight years of the bombing, the Washington Post noted that all of the defendants convicted of the attack in Yemen had either escaped from prison or been released by Yemeni officials. Quote, The day after the attack, a plane load of armed FBI agents arrived in Aden, but they quickly ran into resistance from Yemeni officials, who didn't like the idea of foreigners operating on their soil and telling them what to do. The coal bombing represented an enormous political embarrassment for Yemen, which had lobbied the U.S. Navy to use the port of Aden as a refueling stop. As the poorest country in the Arab world, Yemen was also unprepared for some of the FBI's demands. The Post story quotes Ambassador Bodin saying the FBI was, quote, dealing with a bureaucracy and a culture they didn't understand. She also noted, quote, Yemen operates on a different timeline than we do. We had one group working on a New York Minute and another on a 4,000-year-old history. The Post story also notes, quote, the FBI and some White House officials, in turn, suspected Bodin was too sympathetic toward the Yemenis. Also quoted is the then State Department counterterrorism coordinator Michael Sheehan, who said, I felt both sides were over the top, the FBI in demanding complete autonomy in a foreign country and state in being too protective of the host country, and eventually it just turned into a clash of wills. Ambassador Bodine declined to be interviewed for this series. Ultimately, nothing was done to target bin Laden by the Clinton and Bush administrations during the three-year period between Infinite Reach and 9-11. It should be noted that the 9-11 plot was already well underway on its own separate trajectory by the time of the USS Cole attack, so there is no correlation between the two events. Survivors of the embassy and Cole bombings were not happy about the government's lack of a response. My view, uh, and I was a nonpartisan uh, foreign service officer when all this occurred, but my view generally was a pox on both your houses in terms of the leadership shown uh, by uh, the, the Clinton administration and uh, the Bush administration following that. Uh, I don't think either one did as much as uh, uh, could have been done and should have been done um, after uh, the bombings of August 7th, 1998. And um, uh, you can argue that uh, uh, even if President Bush had done more, there wasn't much time be before 9-11 occurred. But I, uh, there is that story in the news about him having been warned um, about uh, Osama bin Laden wanting to attack the United States. I wish more had been done then. I wish more had been done by uh, President Clinton in terms of targeting uh, um, Osama bin Laden himself. Um, not just throwing a few missiles at, at uh, a supposed uh, chemical weapons plant. I think um, uh, we learned a, 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 such a hard lesson from 9/11 that uh, that, and I don't know if if a more serious effort to get Bin Laden would have changed things and would have prevented 9/11. But uh, uh, we'll never know. This was what was so absolutely stunning that it was incomprehensible that a U.S. Navy ship could be attacked, 17 sailors killed. And at the end of that, we had a failure for two administrations. Bill Clinton kept raising the bar for responding to it because he didn't want to leave any political baggage on the table that the Bush administration might use against him and the Democrats. And Tenet, Director Tennant at the CIA 
and the FBI were presenting them with hard, incontrovertible evidence of Al-Qaeda's involvement in this attack and that we should do something. And he eventually walked out of office doing nothing. By the same token, the Bush administration came in with Secretary Rumsfeld and others, and they took the attitude of, hey, we're forward-looking, not backward-acting. If it had been important, the Clinton administration would have started something and we would have finished it for them because it was in our national security interests. Therefore, if they don't consider it important, neither do we. And they walked away from it. This has been a source of anger and frustration with the families and the crew for literally two decades now, because it was a failure by our nation's leaders to understand the gravity of the threat. Any response to the attack on the USS Cole may not have happened because of timing. The presidential election was scheduled for a few weeks after the attack. The subsequent Florida recount delayed the outcome of the race and presidential transition for more than a month. Eventually, the matter of the USS Cole got lost in the shuffle between the outgoing and incoming administrations. Peter Baker explains. Was there a sense that Clinton was worried about saddling his successor, which he presumably he was hoping for Gore, but leave his successor to clean up a mess that he started, clean up a war that he started? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a reluctance uh, by any president on the way out of office to 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 make uh, decisions or take actions that would, uh, uh, you know, perhaps be at odds with what the, your successor is interested in doing. You know, it's you can find a number of examples of that. So I think you're right that, they, you know, rather than rather than respond to that, as, as we now think, obviously, seems so clear. Um, I, I think it's uh, the, the natural inclination at that point is to is to uh, uh, to leave it to your successor. But the problem is your successor, whoever it is, a new president coming in is is very hobbled in terms of, of responding to things like that because they're just building a government and they don't have a team. You know, Bush didn't even have a lot of his national security team in place by the time 9-11 happened because of vetting and confirmation issues and so forth. So a new administration coming in is really handicapped in its capacity to um, to act on things like that. And so it, it, the Clinton team, eight years in, had a much better you know, capacity at that point, but but didn't end up uh, uh, taking action. Regardless of context and circumstances, Al-Qaeda had managed to strike against the United States three times in two years with minimal consequence. This perceived inaction would seemingly confirm Bin Laden's notion of the United States as a paper tiger. It is unlikely another missile launch or bombing in response to the coal would have done anything to deter or postpone the 9-11 attacks. Remember, by this point, some of the 9-11 hijackers were already in the United States. The plot was being directed from Pakistan by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, with assistance from Ramzi bin al-Sheib, Mustafa Ahmad al-Hasawi, Amar al-Baloki, and Walid bin Atash, who were in Europe and the Middle East respectively. Another retaliation strike against targets in Afghanistan would not have affected any of them. That plot was already well underway and gradually approaching completion. What we didn't know at the time was that the worst was still ahead. That's it for this episode of Zero Hour. If you want to learn more, go to the website zerohourpod.com, where I've included a list of articles, documents, and links that I used in my research. The next episode will look at the people and organizations inside the U.S. government that were monitoring Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda before 9-11. Who were these men and women? What were the legal and institutional boundaries that they were operating in? Why did they fail? 
It will also look at the never-executed proposals to capture bin Laden in Afghanistan. I'm David DeSola. Thank you for listening.